TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. It's great to be back with you, Felix. Yeah. And of course, Thanksgiving is around the corner. Are you ready? Turkey and Davin, everything. Yeah, fantastic. So besides thinking about the holiday, do you have topics for us? Well, I confess, I've been thinking a lot about Africa. Oh, And okay. there are just some remarkable developments. And we've never really had the opportunity to think hard about Africa. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be great, but it would be even better if we had someone who actually knew what they were talking about. <laughs> yes, generally a good idea. <laughs> and in fact, we do. So we are joined today by one of our wonderful colleagues, Carrie Elkins, who's both a professor of history and African-American studies and at the business school, and just somebody who really thinks hard about the continent and about business and just about everything that we want to hear about. So Carrie, it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much, Mahir. It's just great to be here and opportunity to talk with my friends and colleagues about Africa. So 30 plus years I've been working on Africa in the last, especially sort of 10 to 15 years, I've been working a great deal thinking about businesses, thinking about the role of entrepreneurship insofar as there's a connection between an historian and the present and future. Mm, fantastic. And Felix, did you bring something too? Well, I have a pretty mundane topic <laughs> compared to talking about Africa. I would <laughs> like to talk about empty lots. Yes. In particular, empty lots of land in cities. I know it doesn't sound very enticing, but I promise you it'll be super interesting. Fantastic. And how we get those empty lots not to be empty lots. That's right. Excellent. Good. So me here, Africa. Yeah. So Africa rising. It's just a remarkable thing that we will live to see over the next 30 years. So in particular, by 2050, forecasts, and it's pretty clear it's true, one quarter of the working age population is going to be in Africa. And in fact, one third of 15 to 24 year olds will be in Africa. So this is globally, right? Exactly. And so the transformations that we've seen, for example, in China over the last two decades that have really just change the global economy. It's hard not to imagine that happening with Africa in the next several decades. At the same time, there is this enormous enthusiasm about what that prospect means for Africa as that youth gets older, as they contribute more and more to the global economy. There's also concerns 
about the degree to which the growth there can be sustained with that remarkable demographic growth. So it feels like one of these things that we have to come to terms with to understand the next 20 years. And I'm curious if it inspires tremendous hope and excitement or if it's a cause of caution. But I'm curious, Carrie, if you feel that sense of optimism or if you feel something more subtle and nuanced. Yeah, I'm an African optimist. As an academic, we always footnote everything. So I'll qualify it in all kinds of ways and we can talk about that. But I think if we look at some of the trends, what I would encourage folks to do is think about Africa, sort of let's parse it out. It's a massive continent, right? 54 countries, mm-hmm. 1.2 billion people. So to talk about it in kind of a homogenous place. And so, you know, if we were to look at, say, Kenya compared to Nigeria and South Africa, three biggest economies, right? And we think about Kenya as kind of anchoring East Africa. I'm very, very bullish on Kenya. Nigeria, they floated the currency. They've got the population growth is a real, real challenge there. And South Africa is having, it never really got its footing post-South Africa. But nonetheless, there's a pointing to an optimism, even outside the places where I'm super, super excited about, like East Africa. And I think at the same time, we've got to be cautious, right? We've got to be cautious about the trends around all this young population, you know, the average age is 19, 19 years That's old. That's amazing. <laughs> but if we want to get down to brass tacks in terms of things I worry about in terms of making sure there's employment. The other thing is I would take a lifeboat with young people from Africa any day of the week. Hmm. So, Carrie, it is wonderful to hear that optimism from you with those notes of caution. Felix, what do you make of the opportunities ahead? I loved your very first comment, Carrie, in particular Everything you say about Africa as a whole has to be wrong (laughs) because it's this really huge continent. Mm -hmm. You all have seen these maps where they superimpose other countries on Africa, and you see it's actually bigger than China, India, the U.S., and the European Union taken together. So it's just massive. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, it's more than 50 countries. So you can't say many things that are common. Maybe the most interesting part about the demographic concerns or the demographic opportunities is that if there's one thing we're not so sure is whether the current demographic trends will hold as a result of many more girls going to school. Hmm. Like in many emerging economies in Africa, when a girl doesn't have any formal education, the average is about six kids or so. If you go to primary school, it's four kids. If you have a secondary education, it's two kids. And so because we have seen an amazing lift in enrollment rates of young girls in particular, I think the only question mark around demography is how quickly will it be that much better educated women will then marry later, will have fewer kids? And as a result, you get a little bit of a demographic squeeze maybe before you reach the really optimistic numbers. Now, that sounds like a not so great story, Mm. but funny enough, it's exactly the squeeze that then translates into economic growth. So when people talk about the demographic dividend, it's literally that point at which the ratio of the people who are in the workforce relative to everyone else, if that ratio goes up, that's when you get supercharged growth or higher growth rates. And we know, say, from East Asia, that's about a third of growth for Asia just came from that demographic squeeze. And so Lots of optimism about many young people, but then in particular, lots of optimism about 
what these young people will do different from the people before them. Mm. What's your sense, Mihir? I agree with both of you about all the reasons to be optimistic, and in particular, this demographic transition that we're hoping for, which is reduced fertility, leading to this kind of higher per capita growth, could really, really be powerful. I guess the thing that I can't get my arms around is this question of how monolithic Africa is. Now, of course, India is not monolithic and China is not monolithic. And people who talk about Bihar don't often separate it from Karnataka or Gujarat. So there's heterogeneity there too. But in Africa, there's no unitary political actor, Kerry. Mm -hmm. So when I think about China and the degree to which we think about what India is accomplishing and may accomplish, it's very heterogeneous. <laughs> but there's a unitary political actor who's able to exert an agenda. And I'm curious if you think we can realize the full effects of this demographic transition and all these opportunities without a unitary political actor. On one hand, you might say, well, we'll have these different states competing. On the other hand, we know that scale matters. These big countries that are able to act uniformly, they do amazing things. So do you see that as an impediment or do you kind of see that as something actually we're going to see lots of different models sprouting up and there's lots of competition and maybe that's the way forward. I think we're going to see a lot of different models. I think what's going to be so dramatic is going to be the unevenness of what happens. Right. When we think about mm -hmm. this sort of demographic transition that you were talking about, Felix, it took Britain two centuries to right. do this. <laughs> it's right. But it only yes. took Thailand 40 years. Yeah. So I'm curious if you both could wave your wand and <laughs> think about a change that would allow us and allow Africans to fully realize the remarkable potential of the continent, what would you hope for and wish for in the next 20 years? I'll give you mine, which is a little along your lines, Carrie. I think if we saw increasing levels of integration within Africa from an economic perspective and a trade perspective and the flow of goods and services and capital and labor, that would get me so excited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I could mm -hmm. wave a wand, I don't think I would wave a wand and say lots of FDI. I think that's kind of complicated and problematic. But if I could wave a wand and say lots of economic integration, hmm. that would be something I would go for. I'm curious, what would be the sign that you would look for to really see something promising? I would probably go back to one of your earlier points, Carrie, and thinking about what kinds of growth, what kinds of activities really translate into jobs, in particular into jobs that then are relatively well paid. Yeah. And there, I think, it's just very split. On the one hand, say there's so much enthusiasm about tech in Kenya and all these ideas, all these entrepreneurs. And then we know from our own economy and we know from China and South Korea and everyone else, these kinds of industries just do not produce all that many jobs. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a real split in the population where some people do really, really well and most everyone is left behind. The parts that I'm most excited about or I find very interesting is these homegrown businesses that are relatively labor intensive and that are now going away from a model basically serving the super rich in Africa, which is in part what is happening with FDI. So say supermarkets, I find a really interesting market. So you have Quick Mart in Kenya, you have Kazion in Egypt, you have Market Square in Nigeria. And what all of these are doing is they're moving away from the biggest cities. Right. And they're trying to build retail that is not fabulous, fabulous like Garfour and others in Africa, but 
a step up from the open market with uncertain quality and uncertain prices and all of that. And that to me is interesting. That's maybe the thing that makes me most hopeful because on the one hand, it's labor intensive, we know. Yeah. And then it's serving, maybe you could say an emerging middle class or it's thinking about the geography in these countries a little differently in that not everything is just focused on the main cities, the capitals, the biggest cities, but there's lots of opportunity elsewhere. That really gives me more hope than anything else. Mm -hmm. It is really remarkable. People don't think about retail as a powerful growth engine, but it is. It's so important. It employs a lot of people. <laughs> there's a lot of productivity improvements that happen through retail and happen through distribution channels. So I think that's mm -hmm. a thing that people don't really think very much about. In some ways, my magic wand would be uh, sort of combining a little bit of what you were both saying. I start sort of in the big picture of things as a historian, there are really very few places we can point to that sort of moved into sort of, if you will, the sustainable, quote unquote, modern economy without industrialization. Mm -hmm. yeah. It mm -hmm. hasn't happened. Yeah. And so even the simple minded historian knows, right, you know, the service sector isn't going to get you out of this. That You know, we've got to create jobs. Bottom line, you have this young, energetic, scrappy increasingly more highly educated population, fastest growing middle class in the world. If we look at some of what's been going on, and to your points, it's industrialization. Mm -hmm. We've got semiconductor businesses there. We've got Gearbox, which is doing all these high mix, low flow electronic manufacturing. We've got Isuzu's been there for a long period of time. They're creating jobs. And of course, the garment industry, right, which is what we would think of more of like you're in Manchester in 1810. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that's driving change, right? Yes. And at the same time, you know, regional, both within countries and within regions in particular, because tastes are different from place to place. Mm. What people want in East Africa are very different from what they want in South Africa or West Africa. So like in Kenya, with all of the booming middle class, and even when we go to Mombasa or Kisumu, some of these areas that are clearly far from outside of Nairobi, you got to go to Carrefour. <laughs> there used to be a Nakomat there, which kind of went under. The opportunity for sort of local businesses to take off, the opportunity for retail. Now, South Africa, for those listeners who have been to South Africa, they have really seized on this. I mean, mm -hmm, if you go mm -hmm. to South Africa, you might as well be in Western Europe. That's right. And some yeah. of that sort of growth in some ways reminds you of the robber baron period in the U.S. with terrible things. I mean, apartheid was a horrific political scourge on the history of humanity in many ways. At the same time, it accelerated in some ways. It, there was a plowing back of investment into the country in the same way that we see in places like the U.S. when we sort of castigate things like, you know, it was terrible the way people were treated in factories and the rest. But a result was we don't necessarily need the kind of Chinese investment in infrastructure. It's already there. Mm -hmm. So you can move goods and people around. Mm. It makes a big, big difference because a lot of places, Felix, to your point, the regional areas are important, but the infrastructure is just so lacking to get in and out. So that's yeah. got to be addressed. Yeah. And China really made some big inroads with that. And I think people are trying to lean on the United States to do more in, in some of that investment. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me in that respect is to think about there's so much enthusiasm for entrepreneurship, right? And we're thinking about, oh, who's going to create the next Mpesa, whatever it is. But really, it's the boring stuff. 
that is maybe most needed. Yeah. The mundane businesses like infrastructure is a great example. We just need a lot of boring construction. We need a lot of boring railway building. We need a lot of boring building out retail. A lot of PVC pipes, Felix. <laughs> as exciting as some of the entrepreneurial ventures can be if we then think about what is going to produce the kinds of jobs. It's not the high-flying ideas. It's the things we have done but haven't done in Africa for a very long time. Mm -hmm. mm. So we talked a little bit about the magic wand and the wonderful things that could happen. If you had to pinpoint maybe one thing that gives you pause, mm. a trajectory or something that you think, oh my God, it's been a little while since we all saw that cover of The Economist and then we had 1% growth for the next decade or so. What's the biggest impediment to Africa truly being a success story? Well, gosh, I think it comes back to youth employment. Mm -hmm. Young people, when they are unemployed, especially young men, when they're unemployed, can become very problematic. Mm. And that's a story we've seen around the world. And the rates of unemployment in some countries, including, for example, South Africa, are startlingly high. That can undo lots and lots of things. And that can happen via crime. That can happen via politics. That can happen via radicalization. And so there is this sense in which we really need to think about that employment problem, not just as a source of generating wealth, but because of it as a source of political stability. And so that is what I would keep my eye on, is how do we mm -hmm. think about youth unemployment? Mm -hmm. How do we understand whether there are really opportunities yeah. for people, because that is where things I think can go wrong. Yeah. Carrie, I don't know, what do you think? I would definitely put that at the top of my list, right? If we think of sort of the top three things, the unemployment factor is major. I mean, if you have one in four people in the world are going to be African, the disproportionate number will be average age of you know 19, and they're all unemployed. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It's mind-boggling, actually, when you think it's about it. It's mind-boggling when you think about it, right? Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, when you think about the ingenuity, and look, I don't want to sugarcoat it, the way in which many on the continent live, it's microtransactions, right? We go out, we fill our gas in our car, we grocery shop maybe once a week, not in most places in Africa. You pay your few shillings to take the public transport to work. You buy your little bit of firewood for your breakfast to cook it. All these tiny little microtransactions. My other worry is if we go from the micro to the macro, I worry about the corruption. It's bad. We can't underestimate that. That's fairly universal across most of these countries. We need a whole other show to sort of go into that. I want to be careful in saying it's not a particular African problem. I think this is a global problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. In mm -hmm. terms of failure of political leadership, I think it's felt most acutely in places where we have disparities of income level, when we have lack of jobs. And, you know, we have to look at things like debt to GDP ratio. Kenyans is around 70%. Mm -hmm. All these countries, we should be thinking about these kinds of things. But I think someone has to be local, but I think FDI is going to matter on some of this infrastructure. And to yeah. get it there, mm -hmm. I think still there continues to be some prejudice around Africa in terms of investment. That's interesting. Yeah. What worries you, Felix? So... The three of us live in the United States, so we're used to looking at old politicians. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's one of the biggest political issues in Africa. Yeah. In particular, if you think about how young the voters are, mm. and then having people in their 70s, people in their <laughs> 80s, people in their 90s, and everybody desperately trying to install a son or a daughter or a cousin <laughs> to follow, that I think is terrible in the sense that it will undermine the belief in democracy as mm. a reasonable way to organize mm. politics. And yeah. we see it in lots of places, Sudan, Ethiopia, where it's the young people who then push against these very old leaders. But finding a way to have more turnover. Mm -hmm. And in Africa, it comes with relatively young democracies, maybe not the most mature institutions. And so I think the danger is huge. And you see it in a series of coups, Niger yeah. this year, Burkina Faso the year before, Sudan, Chad, mm. Guinea in 2021. It's literally like the dominoes are falling. And that is maybe the one thing that worries me more than anything else. Mm. Can I just jump in on that? Because it just sparked an idea, which is, it makes me think in, a, in your points about the coups, Felix, that my hope is always that people talk about Africa as a continent, not as a country, right? That these are 54 very different countries. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're also going to see is a real diversion between them insofar as the ones that do take off. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that Ghana, Mauritius, Kenya, Rwanda... Botswana nationalized its diamonds, and even South Africa and Nigeria, relative to your Burkina Fasos, your Mali, your Chad, your Sudan, that we're going to see this kind of divergence. And in some ways, not unlike how people talk about parts of Southeast Asia or yep. potentially even Europe, the difference between Norway and Greece. Yeah. But the extremes will be more extreme when we think about the levels of poverty. But if we were to have this call and 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's what I would yeah. be expecting our conversation would be. Our conversation would be, what do we do with the countries? And also, by the way, these become hotbeds, the Sahel and the rest. And these are places where global terrorism does take root. And these things that we should be worrying about. If I looked at my crystal ball, I would say that's where this continent is headed. And I think that suddenly people will have much greater facility in knowing the difference between these different, not just regions, but countries and the continent itself. Mm. I think the last thing on that I would just say, Carrie, is it does feel to me like one of the big countries has got to really do well. Mm -hmm. It's Nigeria, it's South Africa, it's Kenya. I take your point, right? But at the heart of Europe, there's Germany. Mm -hmm. There is an economic engine. And so I yep. would love to see not just that diversion, but I would love to see a large country really figure it out. Because mm -hmm. I think that would be very, very powerful for the whole continent in many ways. Hugely so. And a country like Kenya being able to figure out how do you get Northvolt or how do you get Tesla to make the batteries in Kenya. The cobalt, 60% of the world's cobalt is coming from the DRC right next door that's part of the East African community. Yeah. How do they figure this out, right? And I think to your point, if that doesn't happen, then we are going to mm -hmm. have a similar conversation in the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So I'll put it in the calendar, 20 years. We'll talk again. <laughs> We've got a date. Well, I'm hoping that there's going to be so much to talk about that it'll be even sooner than 20 years. So <laughs> let's hope for that. Fantastic. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, Felix, empty lots. (laughs) What's so great about empty lots, Felix? (laughs) Yeah, so it's a bit of a puzzle at the heart of the real estate market in the United States. So I'm just looking at demographics. I'm looking at how many kids do people have. I'm looking at what's the rate at which homes get so old that we really want to tear them down and maybe new ones. Relative to that benchmark over the last 10 years, we built about 7 million fewer homes than you would expect. Hmm. So there's just this big discrepancy between how much we build and then where we want to live and how we want to live and how many kids we want to have. And it's particularly interesting against the other observation that in every major city, there are tens of thousands of empty lots. And we often talk about housing affordability first and foremost as being a city problem. And so putting these two things together just doesn't work really well. How can it be that we have this affordability crisis? We talked about it when we talked about the dark side of the wealth increase that we see in the data. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we have so much land that is not being used. I'm curious, what do you make of it? How can both of these things exist at one and the same time? Yeah, it is a great puzzle. And it's not just in the US, it's really around the world. Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about that problem. The first has to be regulatory. So if you think about land use regulations, that can really hinder how properties developed. Yeah, And then the second is an instrument that I think people have become super interested in, Felix, which is this question of how we think about undeveloped land and how we should tax oh. those kinds of properties. Yeah. And so I don't know if you've been paying attention to this, but all of a sudden, this classical idea of a land value tax or a land tax has just come roaring back. (laughs) And the underlying idea is kind of interesting. And it's fairly simple, which is rather than a traditional property tax where you tax both the structures and the land, we should have really just a land tax or alternatively a split level kind of tax where you would tax land potentially quite a bit, and properties quite a bit less. And maybe that is the solution that we need to spur lots and lots of development. So I'm not sure which you think is more interesting, Felix, but I think those are two big pieces of the puzzle for thinking about why this conundrum exists. Yeah, I think it's spot on. I think in particular, the tax debate is super interesting because it goes exactly back to the heart of the problem. When you think about empty lots in the U.S., of course, 
to some extent, this reflects the racist policies of past times, who had access to mortgages, who didn't have access to mortgages. Black families in particular, they often had these what's called a land contract, which is basically a seller-financed kind of mortgage mm -hmm. with the one important difference that you build no equity whatsoever in the home until you made that very last payment. Right. And as a result, if there's a recession, if you get into financial trouble for some other reason, many black families were forced out of their homes. And then since that happened in these concentrated areas, it was very difficult to develop them afterwards. Combine this with the Great Recession, where many absentee landlords and investors came and swooped up many, many of these empty lots. And the idea is just let it sit there. And at some point in time, there might be a boom. You pay next to nothing for many of these lots. And once the boom then drives up land value without ever really having done any work other than invested wisely at the right moment in time, you will make a fortune. Right. So that means the plots are not really available because the incentives to sell are just minimal. That's one of the reasons to believe that one of these taxes might actually be a really great idea because now all of a sudden just letting the land sit there is going to be expensive. Yeah. I'm just so happy to hear you waxing poetic about taxes because <laughs> usually I'm the one who wants to talk about them. And you're right. This is an idea which has lots and lots of reasons to love in addition to the ones you're proposing. So the wonderful thing about a land tax, conceivably, is first, we don't expect big behavioral responses other than the ones you just mentioned, mm -hmm. which is we actually worry about a lot of taxes that change people's decision making. And for example, even a property tax in some sense gets it exactly wrong, which is <laughs> you don't want to put a big tax on the actual structure. You want it to be more based on the land because it's a fixed factor. There's really little behavioral response there. And second, you know, it has elements that are quite progressive. Mm -hmm. High value land tends to be owned by wealthier people. And so it's conceivably both advancing efficiency goals as well as equity goals. It can be a little bit complex, but it is really in many ways a wonderful tax. The puzzle, Felix, of course, is Henry George, of course, popularized this idea more than 150 <laughs> years ago. Yes. And yet we've only seen limited amounts of experimentation with it. It, it seems to be roaring back. We've seen, for example, some counties in Pennsylvania have experimented with this. Some people attribute some of the changes in Harrisburg as one example as being a really vivid example of what can happen when you do a split-level tax. So this is not the pure utopian land value tax where we replace all taxes with a land tax. <laughs> it's a little bit more modest, right? Which is we try to do things at the local level in a more thoughtful way. And of course, now Detroit has yes. pioneered this idea again. Yeah. And there are other jurisdictions. Australia uses it a fair bit. Denmark uses it a little bit. But part of the conundrum for me is, Felix, it has these attributes. You think we'd like it, and yet we don't see it nearly as much as we should potentially see it. Mm -hmm. Now mm -hmm. we're starting to see it again. But I'm curious what you make of that fact, that in some sense it seems relatively ideal, and yet we seem so ambivalent about it. Yeah, and maybe to drive home your point even further, usually people will oppose any change in taxes because 
it will make someone worse off. Right. Here, you really have an opportunity to lower the tax on the structure by just about as much as you increase the tax on the land. So that for most of the people who, say, live in a home or live in an apartment, the tax consequences will basically be zero. So that makes it even more puzzling why it's not an even bigger movement than it is. One intuition that I have is Practically speaking, in many cases, the very low incentives to develop land are really coupled with other kinds of issues. So, for mm -hmm. instance, one of the reasons why we haven't been more aggressive, I think, is that the problems around the incentives to build are coupled with other issues that we haven't really tackled successfully. I remember when I lived in Philadelphia, the city tore down dozens and dozens of structures, in particular in the north of the city, because there was just no prospect that anyone would ever live there. And what happens when the city incurs these costs? They typically put a tax lien. So you have things like back taxes, tax liens, you have unpaid water bills. Sometimes you have environmental burdens on the land. And so there's additional impediments that then make developers maybe shy away from owning those pieces of land. I think we need to encourage both of these things. We need to encourage actually someone wanting to invest in the land in the first place. And that, I think, is best done by being generous on the tax side, recognizing the long-term benefits that you get. And then once you have these incentives, once you own the land, that we use the tax code to make people invest in structures. But really, we need both of these things. Otherwise, we transfer lots and lots of these lots to what's called municipal land bank. Right. And then the land bank sometimes has difficulty transferring them to private owners because everybody worries about environmental burdens and water bills and back taxes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think this debate about land taxes has also, it stayed at a very ethereal, cerebral level. So the people who like it often conceive of it as a way to replace everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's operating in a utopian space, which is where a lot of ideas in tax today operate. Yeah. They operate in a space that's relatively detached from actually the likelihood of it happening. What we really need is not at 40,000 feet, but at 10 feet, like what Detroit is doing, to try to experiment with it a lot more and not conceive of it as some replacement for everything in the world yeah, and not wax poetic about all its merits, but simply experiment with split rate taxes or land taxes kind of throughout lots and lots of jurisdictions. And then we would really learn how it can be developed, how it can be used. Because, you know, when these instruments get developed, Felix, it takes time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. To your point, mm -hmm. lots of weird things can happen. There's like second order effects that can screw up lots of things. But we just haven't seen enough of that. So it feels like an idea that we need to experiment with at the local level a lot more, but should be a part of the toolkit in a way that it just isn't up until today. That's a really interesting point. I think it's also true for carbon taxes. Yeah. We sort of have this ideal carbon tax and yeah. <laughs> we talk about it endlessly. And frankly, we're not really moving in that direction. We're not really moving. What is it about taxes that we have these <laughs> idealistic ideas that somehow don't translate into actual policy? I confess, I think about this problem a lot, actually, because I don't think it's just carbon and land. It's even things like, frankly, the wealth taxes. And so people idealize what that would mean but no one ever gets that serious about doing it. 
And even, for example, multinational coordination about global firms, which has gotten a lot of attention. So we have these big projects in taxation where people love to kind of think about carbon taxes and land taxes and wealth taxes. But the nitty-gritty work of fixing the income tax or the nitty-gritty work of implementing property taxes at the local and state level somehow isn't sexy enough for people. And then these larger conversations become distracting, Mm -hmm. as wonderful as they can be because they stimulate ideas. I really worry that it provides an opportunity to talk about it without ever really being serious about changing anything. (laughs) It's almost like a remarkable level of distraction where everybody gets to keep their current state of play, complain, and then articulate some idealized vision. And nobody wants to do the hard work of, for example, expanding their income tax credit, Mm -hmm. thinking hard about doing things that are more progressive with the income tax. Think about changing the way we do capital gains tax as opposed to think about wealth taxes. So I don't know. I fear that it's this weird way in which we all get to wax poetic about some dream. And then in that process, nobody does the hard work of Mm -hmm. figuring out the real things that are going to solve these problems. That's incredibly interesting and maybe a reason to be more hopeful about land taxes. Exactly. For, I think, two reasons. One is usually we have to do these tax projects at at least a national level or maybe even a global level, like the corporate minimum tax, because otherwise you get these huge distortions that no one wants. Land taxes, on the other hand, that's a local project. And as we see now, you know, in Pennsylvania, Detroit, really local jurisdictions that do it. And to a first approximation, one of the quote-unquote distortions that you might expect is that people move because that's where reasonable housing is available. And to a first approximation, in particular the cities that have big problems with land and empty lots— they would welcome nothing more than having more people in their town. So there's going to be maybe a little pushback of people who fear that property values might fall, that if I sell my house, it's not quite as valuable. So that's a possibility, even keeping taxes the same because there's more supply. But generally speaking, do I want to live in an environment where lots of other people want to live? Do I like the fact that my town is popular and more people move to my town? Yes, lots of reasons to like it. So in a way, your explanation makes me a little more hopeful that we probably can't pull it off with carbon taxes, but maybe land is an opportunity. Land is an opportunity, but it's got to be a grassroots movement at a local level. Yeah. It's not going to be Henry George again. <laughs> it's got to be this very grassroots level, and there's got to be experimentation with it. Yeah. I think what we need is someone to embrace it and really go out there and push it. Because mm-hmm. if we start to see policy entrepreneurs do this stuff, as opposed to being preoccupied with these more, in some sense, attractive ideas, but they're frankly somewhat illusory. These are real ideas that could potentially have remarkable impact on the ground. Okay, Felix, what do you got for recommendations? I have a book recommendation this week. It's a book by Bob Rubin, who used to be a senior partner at Goldman Sachs, who served as Treasury Secretary under President Clinton, so a very prominent figure. And he has a new book out called The Yellow Pad. And it's about decision-making and the way to think about complicated decisions where 
you're sort of at a loss, even analytically, how to think about these decisions. And it's actually quite fabulous. And I don't know if this is literally true or if it's just sort of a mechanism in the book. He describes how he would usually take one of these legal paths and he would describe all the outcomes that are possible and then he would attach probabilities to it. And when I first looked at it, I thought, yeah, so probabilistic thinking isn't that what we're all doing all the time? Isn't that yeah. the most obvious way to make decisions? And what's fabulous about the book is then he looks at lots of decisions that he made as a private investor, when he was at Goldman, when he was the treasury secretary. And you see that the nuances are actually incredibly important and that in many of these cases, our intuition about decision-making is not really close to what this yellow pad would suggest. So hmm. give you two examples. He talks about how you should always think about risk as a range. Risk is not a number. Risk is a range and you need to think about the probability distribution. Yeah. And then of course, everybody knows, right? When I just look at expected outcomes, that's not quite the right way to think about it. Sure. <laughs> and then guess what? He talks about risk management in large financial institutions where they essentially look at one number and the whole distribution gets lost. Yeah. So it's a real joy to read because it takes something that you take for granted and that you're familiar with, but it puts it in the context of a really remarkable career and a rich life. And you see many of the wrinkles of decision-making that are super interesting to follow. That sounds fantastic. I'm just taking a look at it now. I hadn't seen that it had come out. It just came out like six months ago. That looks great. Yes, it's relatively recent. My only disagreement is mine is a quadrile graph paper pad. But aside from that, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. What do you have for us, Mir? So I have a weird, quirky... TV show on Amazon Prime. Ooh, I love Weird Quirky. Yeah, and as you know, I'm a cop drama comedy kind of fan, and this is the ultimate weird intersection of cop show and comedy. <laughs> and it's called Deadlock, and it takes place, first off, in a beautiful place, which is Tasmania, Australia. Oh, and then okay. second, it is a portrait of this wonderful community in Tasmania, Australia. In particular, the woman who is the lead is in a lesbian relationship with this other woman. And then there is a whole community of people in Tasmania. And it is just such a wonderful pinpoint portrait of that geography and of a community. It's just both hilarious and actually has got a really good mystery underneath it all. Oh, really? It's actually yeah. like yeah. there's a good cop show. And then it's just laugh out loud funny. Along wow, the way. Okay. It's a mini series. It's a mini series. I think it's six or seven episodes long, okay. which is my perfect arrangement yeah. and thoroughly enjoyable. So I had happened to have gone to Tasmania recently and I just found it to be fantastic. Wonderful. And this is it for tonight. Thank you everyone for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. 